Uh, open your Bibles need to John chapter 9 for the message tonight. This is the story of the man uh, who was blind from birth to whom Jesus gave sight. John 9, and we're just going to be focusing on verses 1 through 7. John 9, 1 through 7. Would y'all stand for just a minute and, and just take a, take a big stretch? Uh, All right. Thank you. You may be seated. John 9. Verses 1 through 7, you can follow along uh, in your Bibles, or it might be, it will be, on the screen behind me. As he passed by, he saw a man blind from birth, and his disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? Jesus answered, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God might be displayed in him. We must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. Then he anointed the man's eyes with the mud and said to him, Go, wash in the pool of Siloam, which means sent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. Our Father, we pray your blessing on this, your word. In Christ's name, amen. Uh, there are two kinds of people that are born into this world. There are the blind people who know they're blind, uh, these are the ones to whom Jesus gives sight. Then there are the blind people who don't know they're blind or won't admit that they're blind. To these, Jesus leaves in their blindness. At the end of John chapter 9, you see this dialogue with uh, the Pharisees. And in verse, 39, the, uh, in verse 39, Jesus said, For judgment I came into this world, that those who do not see may see. Now those, those are the blind who know they're blind. And Jesus has come that they may see. And that those who see may become blind. And what he means by that are those who are blind but think they see. That they may become blind. Some of the Pharisees near him, near him heard these things and said to him, Are we also blind? See, so they, these, are, these are ones who are blind but don't know they're blind. Are we blind? And Jesus said to them, If you were blind, meaning if you recognized your blindness, you would have no guilt. But now that you say, we see, see they say we see, though they're blind, your guilt remains. So you have these two kinds of people, and Jesus has come for judgment. That is to draw a clear line between the two categories. To make clear who the blind are, who know they're blind, and who the blind are that think they see, but would remain in their blindness. 
And he's talking, of course, about our recognition of our sin and need of a Savior. That's what he means by uh, being blind and knowing that we're blind, that we know, we recognize that we're sinners in need of a Savior. That's someone who knows they're blind and who admits they're blind. To them, Jesus gives sight. And the question as we continue tonight is, what category are you in? What category are you in? And the purpose tonight is to urgently encourage all who confess blindness to find their cure in Christ alone. If you recognize your blindness, that you would find your sight in Christ alone. Now this story of blindness and seeing begins all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning was God, and in the beginning the earth was formless and void, and darkness was over everything, right? Nobody could see, if there were anyone, uh, it would have been in total darkness. Until Jesus says, no, until God says, excuse me, let there be light, and there was light. So you have darkness, followed by God's word, let there be light. And then there's light, and there is light to see. But that's not only true of the first creation, it's also true of the new creation in Jesus Christ. Uh, Because shortly after God brought physical light into a dark, chaotic world. And uh, um, shortly after God did that, the world was plunged into another kind of darkness, a spiritual kind of darkness, when Adam and Eve rebelled against God and darkness came upon them. And there was once again uh, chaos. All was chaos and void until John chapter 1, verse 1, when we read, in the beginning. And once again, God is saying, as Jesus comes into the world in John chapter 1, let there be light. And there was light. The incarnation of Jesus is the light shining in the darkness. And that's what John 9 is all about. Christ bringing light into the darkened soul of man that they may see, that we may see. And so there are three parts to this uh, exhortation and encouragement to confess your blindness so that you may see. To be open to the light of the world to receive the light that is Christ. First of all, I want you to see the purpose of blindness, the purpose of blindness. And I'm I'm thinking here of spiritual blindness, the purpose of spiritual blindness. As Jesus passed by, he saw a blind man from birth, and the disciples asked him, Rabbi, who sinned, this man or his parents, that he was born blind? And Jesus answered. So the question is, why is he blind? 
Why was he born blind? Who sinned? Jesus said, not, it was not that this man sinned or his parents, but that the works of God may be displayed in him. God loves to display, and Christians love to see his glory. We love to see the glory of God. That is, that is all of his greatness. It reminds me of, uh, if you've ever read Esther in the Old Testament, in the beginning of Esther, uh, there's this king uh, named King Ahasuerus, and he throws this big party. And it says he threw, he threw this party in order, quote, to show the riches of his royal glory and the splendor of uh, and the splendor of his greatness, the splendor and pomp of his greatness. Uh, well, King Ahasuerus no doubt did that with a lot of pride in his heart, a lot of, I uh, want to show off, but, but that is what great kings do, and God is the greatest king of all, and he loves to show off his great pomp and glory. Uh, and like, like King Ahasuerus, by the way, who wanted to show off his wife as part of his great glory, Vashti, so our great king loves to show off his bride and, and as part of his great glory also, the bride, the, the church of Christ. But uh, the point is, our, as one preacher said, our God loves to party. <laughs> he loves to show off the, the pomp and the glory of his greatness. And this man was born blind so that God could show the riches of his royal glory by giving him sight. Now we, we are prone naturally, I think this is, this is born into our fallenness, um, we, are, we are prone naturally to think in terms of works, and what we deserve because of our works, right? If, if we're getting blessing, if things are going well, if God is being good to us, what does that mean? It means we're doing good, right? It means we're doing all right. God must be, God must be pleased with me. I had my quiet time today. You know, it's, it's, uh, uh, you know I, got, I got showered with this blessing because I had my quiet time today. Right, we're, prone, we're prone to think that way. Uh, by, by the way, Paul in Romans warns, warns his readers that the kindness of God was meant to lead them to repentance. God being kind to you doesn't necessarily mean that you're okay. It may mean that he's trying to win your heart and turn you from darkness to light. Uh, but just as we're prone to think, well, things are going good for me, I must, be, I must be okay with God, God must be okay with me, we're prone to think things are not going okay with me, therefore God must not be okay with me. I must be doing bad. I must be doing something wrong. Uh, I remember receiving a call once from a, a lady, she had... Uh, uh, she had some rare disease that the doctors couldn't figure out. And uh, she had gotten in touch with this ministry. Uh, I don't remember what the name of it was, but she called this ministry. And their conclusion was that you're suffering because of some specific personal sin. That was their whole, their whole thinking about life. You're suffering, you've got to deal with this sin. If you deal with this sin, then you won't be suffering. So if you're suffering 
tonight. Sorry, it must be because you've got some sin in your life. You, you, you just need to deal with that sin and you're, you'll be okay. Well, listen, suff- some suffering may be a direct result of God's discipline for sin. It can be that way. But it's not necessarily that way. It's often not that way. Or, of course, all, all trials, all suffering does come ultimately because of Adam's sin. Right? There is a sense, as one preacher said, God's still mad about the apple. Right? There, is, there, is, uh, there, is, there is discipline on the world. There is chastening on the world. There is judgment against the world. There is wrath against the world because of Adam's sin, and our trials are a consequence, and our suffering is a consequence of Adam's sin, but it's not necessarily a consequence of your own direct sin. This man who was born blind is an example of that. He was was not blind because of his sin or the sin of his parents. But that's our tendency. That was our tendency is to think that. That's what Job's friends, that's where they went wrong. Back in Job, in the Old Testament, Job was suffering and his friends come along, fess up, Job, you must have done something wrong, otherwise you wouldn't be suffering because that's the way God works. You do good, God blesses. You do bad, God curses. That, that was their thinking and uh, they were wrong about that. The whole, one, of, one of the main points of the book of Job is to demonstrate that sometimes the righteous suffer. Follow that trail in your mind sometimes. The righteous suffer. And that was the mindset of these disciples when they asked, who sinned? Was it this man or was it his parents? Point is, beware of equating suffering with personal sin. Remember Christ. The righteous sometimes do suffer for the glory of God. And I think Jesus' answer here, when he says that the works of God might be displayed in him, explains so much about the world as we know it. We have have deep questions about why things are the way they are. Why did God let Satan into the garden to tempt Eve, deceive Eve, and for Adam? Why did God allow Adam to fall into sin? Why did God allow all of that and then bring a curse upon this world? Why why do we suffer necessarily because of that curse? Why is there sin in the world? Why is there death in the world? Uh, In one sense, it really addresses the whole problem of evil. Here's this man. He's blind from birth. He didn't, it wasn't his fault, wasn't his parents' fault, but God decreed from the foundation of the world that this man would be blind, born blind. Why? For this moment. For this very moment. In order that Jesus would give this man sight and people would say, wow, who is this man? This must be the Christ, the Son of the living God. And seeing that, believe on Him. God decreed from the foundation of the world that this man 
would be born with a specific kind of suffering in order that Jesus might bring relief from that suffering for the glory of God. God was willing to do that. And, and I think that is the answer for why God allowed sin into the garden in the first place, why He allows us to be born in sin, why He allows suffering in this world, it is that the works of God might be displayed in us when Jesus rescues us and gives us everlasting life and raises us on the last day. Ephesians 2 verse 7 says that in the coming, God has so worked that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace in kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Why did God allow the fall? Why did God allow sin? Why did God, God allow uh, death? Why did God allow hell? In order that the riches of His grace and kindness toward us in Christ might be displayed. Or Ephesians 1 verse 6, it is all to the praise of, the uh, to the praise of His glorious grace. And you know, none, none but fallen and redeemed sinners, not angels, not dogs, not Martians, if there were Martians, none can know the glory of God's grace like we can because of the fall. God decreed that this man be born blind for this moment. Now, I want, to, I want to take a few minutes, if I may, to follow that up because this, this, what I'm saying and what I think Jesus says here that suffering is allowed by God in order that Jesus might come and bring healing so that God might get glory, that is a real stumbling block for some people and maybe a stumbling block from, for you. And I've had people express that as a real problem and why they don't believe the gospel. Because it seems like God has set up this chessboard in such a way that He wins to get glory. That He, he has, uh, uh, He's basically using us and causing in us great suffering for a very selfish end. What kind of God would be that mean. And so I want to uh, answer that in a couple of different ways. Um, it may not be, it may not satisfy every question or nuance of that question. Uh, if you want to explore it more, I would recommend to you a treatise by um, a famous theologian named Jonathan Edwards called The Justice of God and the Damnation of the Wicked. He, he addresses this issue. Why, how is God just to allow all this to happen and then send people to hell? It's, it's profound and it's very good. But let me, let me just, um, and I'm not going to try to recreate his treatise, but let me give you a couple of thoughts, okay? Why did God inflict or allow such misery only so that He can fix it 
and get praise. Why, why did God do that? And the first answer is this. Consider, consider your joy. Consider your joy. What I mean by that is this. Imagine that, imagine that you, uh, men, imagine that you, as I'm all sure you'll say truly happened, uh, married the most beautiful, gifted, um, perfect woman in the world. Or, ladies, you can imagine it the other way, uh, if uh, if you like, imagine that happened, and then you get you get married, and then and then your beautiful, perfect, gifted, uh, most amazing woman in the world goes and locks herself in the bedroom, and never comes out, and never lets you see her, never lets you talk to her, never lets you interact with her, never lets you see. Uh, see her interact with others and do the things that she is so gifted and able to do and, and never let you have the interaction with her that you anticipated would bring you such delight. If you want a God who does not decree the fall into sin in order that He might rescue you and so demonstrate His grace, that's what you're asking for. You're asking for a God that you can't really see the beauty of in all of its fullness. I mean, the question Jonathan Edwards keeps asking is, what would you have God do instead? And think about that. What would, be, what would you rather have Him do? Would you have Him create people and never give a law? Never give a commandment that can be broken. Well, he could do that, but you would never see his holiness that way. You would never, you would never see the fullness uh, that he reveals of himself in the law. Or, or maybe having given the law, he would have made you, he would have made people so that they couldn't disobey it. And so never experience judgment or, or condemnation. And then what would you have? You would have a God that you would never see His justice. And, and having not uh, fallen into sin and uh, facing death and eternal damnation, you would never see a God who demonstrates His love by giving His own Son to die on the cross and rescue you out of the pit and and enable you to share in His glory and to perceive and to see His grace like only fallen sinners can see. You know, the, the first Peter says, angels long to look into the salvation that we get to experience because we fell and God rescued us. You would never see the grace and the love of God that can only be, be displayed in Jesus giving Himself on the cross to rescue us from death and hell. Uh, it's, like, it's like saying, God, I, re I really don't want to see the fullness of your beauty and experience the joy of that. But you see, in, in doing that, you are cutting off your own joy because our greatest joy is seeing God for who He is. Beholding His glory is the thing 
that we are made for and that gives us joy. Our joy and God's glory are the same thing. That's the great insight that Jonathan Edwards helps us see, that the Bible helps us see that also. To behold the glory of God is the most joyful thing in the world, and us being joyful in God is His greatest glory. It's the same thing. And if you would rather have a God who never reveals His holiness through the law, who never reveals His justice in condemnation and judgment, who never reveals His love on the cross, who never reveals His grace in calling you to Himself and revealing Himself to you and raising you up to share with Him, uh, uh, to rule with Christ. And you're saying, I don't really want to see all of you, God. Just, just hide yourself in the bedroom. Consider your own joy. But God, God, would, God would let all of that happen in order that you could be as happy as you could ever be. Consider your joy. Secondly, consider Christ on the cross. If you, if you would rather um, consider Christ's suffering, if you would... If you would rather God do it another way, then I would suggest that you're not thinking about Christ's own suffering because the fall and the curse didn't just cost humanity, it cost God still more. For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son. That word gave means gave up to death. That's what gave means in John 3.16. Romans 5.8, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Galatians 3.13, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. And, that, and he's talking about Jesus dying on the cross. Christ, Christ was cast into darkness in order that we might see. And so before we condemn God or criticize God for allowing rebels to suffer, even eternally, consider that He is open through the suffering of His own dear Son, a way for you to be delivered from that suffering. He's not left us without hope. He's opened up wide the, the way into eternal glory and eternal joy, if we would have it, by giving His own Son to pay the cost of that sin, of our sin. And he doesn't even demand that you get your act together first, but that you simply and only trust in Jesus. And I think, I think when, we, when we start criticizing God as the one who lets man fall into sin and experience suffering, we're forgetting that that same God planned from eternity past to give his own son to rescue us from suffering. We say, well, what, um, what about those who never heard? Well, but see, that's why He sent the Spirit, and that's why He sends you and me to go to the world. I mean, it, is, it really, is it really just to sit back and grumble against God because He allows evil 
so that we would know how good he is when, the fa- when he opens this fountain wide and free to all who will come to him. Why will you grumble against him in order to stay away from your ultimate joy? When he has provided the way for your happiness as well as his glory. The, the blindness, the blindness of this man, the blindness of humanity is for the glory of God, which is the joy of man. And all you need say is, I'm blind too. That's that's all. If you were blind, you would have no guilt. All you need know is you're blind. That's the purpose of the blindness. Now, much more quickly, in verses 4 and 5, we see the pressing urgency of responding to the light. The pressing urgency of responding to the light. Verse 4, We must work the works of Him who sent me while it is day. Night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, I am the light of the world. As As long as the sun shines outside, you can do work. Remember, this is an agricultural society. They don't have the bright lights that the workmen on the road crew have to be able to work all night long. Uh, you, you get out your hoe, you take out your, your donkey, you know, and your plow, and you go out to the field, and you can work until it's dark, and then you got to come in, right? You maybe have a lantern in your house or some, or, uh, you know, a oil lamp or something, um, as long, as long as the sun shines, you can work. When day's over, work's done. And Jesus is saying, the same, it's the same spiritually. Jesus says, I am the light of the world. I am the sun. And while the sun is here, Jesus is saying to his disciples in John 9, while the sun is here, the work of God can be done. And he's talking about the work, the work of doing these signs so that people would believe. In fact, in in John chapter 6, verse 29, uh, Jesus says, the work of God is that you believe. Jesus says, while I'm here, the work of God can be done. Believe while I'm here. Now, this this took place about three months before Jesus' death. So they they had about three months until it goes dark. It goes dark on the cross. You remember when Judas took that, Jesus gave Judas the morsel of bread and Judas took it and went out to betray Jesus and it says, and it was night. Jesus' death was the coming of the darkness. The day day was over. Uh, Jesus, uh, Jesus, there was an urgency about this work of God that Jesus was doing to bring people to believe in Him because the night was coming when no work can be done. The opportunity would be passed. Now, that applied to them in a very specific way in that Jesus was with them in their very midst, walking among them, doing these signs in order that they would see who He was and believe but it also applies to us now because Jesus, having 
risen from the grave and ascended into heaven, sends the Holy Spirit, which is a lot of what John's gospel is about. He sends the Holy Spirit as the other comforter, one like Jesus, who would bring the person, the presence, and the power of Jesus, not by our side, but in us. And so the light is shining again because of the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Do you see? The light of the, light of the world has, the light of the world that died on the cross and rose again is now in us. While the Spirit is at work in us, is at work in us, it is daytime. But night is coming again. When Jesus comes again and there is judgment, and this age is over, and so there is now again an urgency. Do you see this? While it is day, we must work the works of Him who sent me. While it is day, night is coming when no man can work. And we can say that still now. It's day now because Christ is in our midst by the Holy Spirit, but the day is, but the day is short. Night is coming. The shadows are lengthening. And there is coming soon a time when it would be said again that it is night, that the day is over. So today, while it is called today, today is the day of salvation. Trust in Him. There is an, there is an urgency. Now is the time to turn to Christ and live, to do the works of God in believing in Christ. Now is the time to do this. These things were written in order that you may know who He is, that you may believe in Him. So listen, the, the sun is going down. This, this day is not going to last forever. Remember, every, think, about, think about this. Every 24 hours, there's light and then there's nighttime. There's light and then there's nighttime. There's light and then there's nighttime because there's coming a day when there will be a permanent nighttime. For some, and a permanent daytime for those who will trust Him. I don't know if that's three months from now, or three days from now, or three years from now, or 300 years from now, but night is coming. Now, while it's day, do the works of God, which is to believe in Him and to declare who He is. pressing urgency of responding to the light. Finally, the place of restoration in verses 6 and 7. Having said these things, he spit on the ground and made mud with the saliva. I, I don't know this for sure, but in a, in a book, in, in the book of John, where creation has such a prominent place, you know, it begins with in the beginning, just like Genesis, where the creation story has such a beginning. There, there's something in this about you remember in Genesis chapter 2, God reached down into the, into the earth and he formed man. It seems like there's a creation 
motif going on here. He reached into the ground, he made mud with the saliva, and he anointed the man's eyes with the mud, and then said to him, go wash in the pool, pool of Siloam, which means scent. So he went and washed and came back seeing. The key is in verse 7 there, the name of the pool, which is called Siloam, which means scent. Scent is a key word in John's Gospel. It's used 33 times to refer to Jesus himself as the sent one. In fact, in verse 4, it says, we must work the works of him who, what? Sent me. So when, when Jesus tells this man to go wash in the pool, which is called sent, what's he saying to us? Isn't he saying, just as the cure for the man born blind is to wash in the pool called scent, so the cure for spiritual blindness is to wash in the man who was sent. In other words, believe in him, the sent one. Jesus is the salve that gives sight to the blind. Jesus is the light that penetrates darkened hearts. Jesus is the pool that will cleanse you of your sins. And so the question is, are you blind tonight? Are you willing to admit your blindness? Then go wash in the pool whose name is Jesus, the sent one. John 20, verse 31 says, These things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. This, this sign was given that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. There is cure for your spiritual blindness. There is light for the darkness of your heart. And His name is Jesus. You know, the Hindus, I mentioned this uh, a couple of weeks ago, the, the Hindus, you know, uh, they believe that you can go to the Ganges River and have your past sins cleansed. But a ritual is never enough. Literally, washing in the pool doesn't save anybody. This blind man washing in the pool of Siloam didn't save him. It was a picture. It was just a symbol. Only trusting in Jesus will do. He is the cleansing stream. Trust Him tonight and see and live. The pool is open for you. Let's pray. Oh God, grant tonight that every soul here who is still in blindness would trust in you, would trust in Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, and in trusting in Him would have light and life and eternal joy. Grant it, we pray in His name. Amen.